Hi, welcome to Online Marketing with John Lagadakis, where we talk about how to set up and run a successful online business, all the way from registering your first domain to setting up your website, SEO, sales funnels and sales copy, social media, lead generation, free and paid traffic methods, and much more. I hope you get a lot out of today's episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast, everyone. It's great to have you here. Thank you so very much for joining us. Our special guest today is David Barnett. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Let me tell you all a bit about David. So David Barnett has had decades of experience in the corporate world and also as a business owner. David has authored several books and is a highly certified international specialist business broker, best-selling author of How to Sell Your Own Business. Uh, and we're going to talk a bit about that because I, I think it's a very important topic for anyone getting into online business, knowing about selling an online business because when you start an online business, you have to have that in mind, selling an online business. But before we get into that, what I would like to do is learn a bit about David himself, David Barnett, the person. So who he's, So David, if you could tell us a bit about yourself growing up, family life, influences, things that maybe especially helped you take the direction that your life took. Yeah, sure. John, um, so I'm from the East Coast of Canada, and um, I grew up here near the near two different coastlines, actually. As a child, I was in the outdoors all the time. So scouting was an important thing for me when I was growing up. And today I'm father of two, and my kids are involved in scouting as well. And so whenever possible, I try to get outside and it helps me to unwind and reconnect with who I am, you know, being away from distraction, being away from the computer, in the forest, hearing the crunch of the leaves and the, and the twigs, etc. And so I have always been an entrepreneur ever since I was a child. You know, I always had those childhood businesses like mowing people's lawns or, or shoveling snow out of their driveways that eventually grew into me being a representative for a a mail order catalog company uh, as a teenager. Um, When I got into university, I I chose to go to business school because I believed that attending business school and getting a business degree would teach me how to be a businessman. And it, and it, it took me about three years to realize that that was not actually the case. What they were trying to do is turn me into a fortune 500 bureaucrat, you know, in, in, in a big enterprise. And so I finished up and I, when I left, I got a job and I got one of the most incredible jobs you can ever imagine. I became a sales rep for the Yellow Pages. And what was so great about this is I actually got to go out every day and sit down and talk with the owners and managers of local businesses and learn about how these different businesses functioned, what kind of customers they were looking for, what their business model was, how they made money and how they were successful and, and what they were looking for for me, like what new clients did they want me to help attract. And this was back in the 90s when the Yellow Pages was a very relevant media. If you typed plumber into Google back then, you'd get a plumbing guy in California, no matter where mm-hmm. you were in the world, because they hadn't sorted out you know, how to search for things locally at that time. Yeah. And you know, I did that for about seven years, and then I finally decided to leave and go and start my own new business, and I did one with a partner. And after about 18 months, uh, I sold that business and I opened up my commercial debt brokerage company, which in in which I helped people get business loans, mortgages on commercial buildings, capital leases, operating leases on equipment, and what are called factoring facilities when people need to turn receivables into cash 
through a third-party finance company. That's when I started to really run into people who were looking for financing in order to acquire businesses. And I realized that there was this huge vacuum where I live in that there weren't many qualified people that could help people buy or sell a business. I decided that I would get into that space and I joined an internationally branded franchise company because they could give me the training that I needed. And I actually became the first person in my region to become certified in buying and selling businesses. And, you know, it took me two years and three different week-long trips to go and attend live seminars and then finally write an exam. Basically, some of the things that were going on, just to give you an insight of what I was seeing, is I got a call one day from a Main Street banker who said, David, I've got this lovely couple in my office. They've just moved to Canada from Korea and they have a contract to buy a convenience store, but it's written on the form of a contract to buy a house and it says they're going to get 90% financing in 10 days. And of course, that's the kind of terms that you purchase a home, but we don't buy businesses under those terms. And the problem that they had run into is that they were trying to buy a business using a real estate agent. Who, of course, had no idea what they were doing, right? And so that's the kind of thing that was going on all the time. And and what was happening is people were getting screwed. They were ending up with poor deals. There was one great example of um, a gentleman who came from Toronto to my neck of the woods, and he had bought a motel and restaurant. Again, a real estate agent was involved, and he bought the building. But the restaurateur, before he sold, had sold a bunch of gift cards, to people in the community at Christmas time. And the, the transaction occurred in the first week of January and people started to show up with these gift cards. And so the new owner, what's he going to do, right? Is he supposed to accept the gift cards and take these losses or does he refuse to accept the gift cards and run the risk of alienating all the people in the community that like to go to the restaurant, right? Mm. And so he ended up actually suing the seller and one of the problems is, is that the contract simply didn't address liabilities or debts or anything like that because it was a purchase contract for a building, right? That's the kind of stuff that happens when people don't have properly structured deals that don't consider everything that there is to consider when you're buying and selling a business. I had the business brokerage for three years. In that time, I helped sell over 35 companies for other people. Eventually, I ended up leaving because the life of a business broker is a terrible one. Business brokers generally represent businesses for sale and they earn a commission when the business is sold. And in that three years, while it might sound like it was a very even flow of business, it was not. There were a couple of different droughts of over nine months where I had no closings. Meanwhile, I had to pay the overheads of my office, my staff, my household expenses. And so this up and down roller coaster of cash flow just drove, it drove me insane. Whenever I did get money, I was afraid to spend it because I wouldn't be certain about when the next check was coming. And then often I would go months and months with no revenue and end up you know, using lines of credit and credit card to, to, to pay expenses. And so it was stressful. you know. And if, if you're watching this on video, all of the gray hair on the side of my head mm-hmm. comes from the time when I was a business broker. And so nowadays what I do is I'm not a broker, I'm a consultant. And what I do is I, is I have a menu of services and I work with both buyers and sellers and I guide them through the process. And for sellers, I've got a five-stage process and for with buyers, I have a three-stage process. Everyone I work with pays me for the part that I do in helping them, much like an accountant or a lawyer gets paid for doing the job that you engage them for, either working out a contract or helping to file a tax return. Yeah, excellent. 
Thank, thanks so much for sharing that, Dave. And just going right back to your early days, you mentioned you were always an entrepreneur. And I get that a lot with guests that are, you know do really well with business and start their own businesses. They've, it was always that way. And I was curious to know with your parents, maybe older siblings, were any of them entrepreneurial minded or is it just something you just were like yourself? You know, it, it's a it's a great question because there's a little bit of a nature versus nurture experiment I think that I'm living through because growing up, my father was an engineer and worked for the federal government and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. She would get terrified every time I would engage in any kind of entrepreneurial endeavor because she thought I might lose some money. She lived her life. You know, there are risk-averse people and then there are risk tolerant people. And she lived her life making every decision based on how she could avoid all risk. My father, of course, worked for the federal government in a civil servants role and uh, worked towards a big pension, which has worked out well for him. And it, it's probably a, a plan that works out well for people in his generation. But I always was trying to figure out how I could solve a problem and earn money and get people to pay me. I would, uh, you know, stay up late at night as a teenager, you know, counting my money and trying to figure out different ways that I could make more money. Now, here's the rub. I'm adopted. So in my early 20s, I managed to make contact with the paternal side of my my biological family. Mm -hmm. Guess what, John? Guess what? They're entrepreneurs, are they? All of them. Yep. Oh, okay. Right. There you yeah. Go. And so it made me actually pause and wonder if there is not some sort of natural, you know, entrepreneurs are born kind of thing, because it always just seemed natural to me to see opportunities. I'll, I'll give you a quick mm. example. When I was at university back in the early nineties, a lot more people were smoking cigarettes at that time. And there was a real popular trend where, where I was toward the Zippo lighters, you know, the stainless steel, yeah. shiny yeah. lighters that you refueled. So people were buying these things and they were very trendy. And so I got the idea that I would take my university's crest and put it on a Zippo lighter and sell them. And so I sent the crest into the Zippo lighter company and they immediately recognized it as being, you know, an official insignia. And they said that they wouldn't put it onto a lighter without some sort of licensing document showing that I had permission to use the image. And so I went to my university's vice principal and I signed a licensing agreement with the university. Wow. I paid them a percentage of my wholesale cost for permission to use the logo. And I sent that into Zippo. They manufactured the lighters for me and sent them to me. And then I went to the university owned bookstore and wholesaled them to them. And Excellent. so wow. I just noticing a place where I could make some money, I was able to put that deal together. It didn't take much of my time but I probably made a couple thousand dollars over the course of three years with those Zippo lighters. Mm -hmm. So, so when I say I'm always looking for opportunity, that's the kind of thing that comes up at me all the time. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. It's really interesting. It's very interesting for those that are listening with the experience that you've had, Dave, uh, helping people buy businesses, sell businesses, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's so important. And it's something that I've learned over the years that, when you start an online business, any business, and, and even an online business, it's so important to keep the end mind in goal. I think especially with online businesses, because they're so easy to begin, there's little to no capital required. You can do it at home, do it in your own time. So a lot of people start online businesses, but I don't think that, I'm pretty sure that most people don't start them correctly, i.e. with a mind to sell. So what advice 
would you give, Dave, to those out there that have started or are thinking of starting an online business? What things do they need to have in place as they start their online business? Well, it, it, it's interesting because I, I do get asked quite a lot in the specifically about the realm of online businesses. And one of the first things, though, that I'd like to address is, is the fact that online businesses are somehow different because they're really not. Most small business owners, whether it's someone starting a pool service or a roof repair business or whatever it is, they get started not because somebody wants to become the next Donald Trump or, or Richard Branson, okay? They're started because somebody needs an income, mm-hmm. right? And they need to earn money. And so if it's an online business that somebody's starting in their spare time because they need to expand their income, they want to earn more money, or if it's somebody who loses their job and they need to quickly put something together when they realize they can't find a new job, it's the same kind of motivation. And most of those people are thinking about the income, right? And so they build up the business to the point where cash starts to flow, and then they work that business, they manage that business, and the money starts to flow, and they're happy. You're right, most people don't think about the exit. The truth of the matter is, is that businesses rarely sell for an amount that would excite the owner. So when you hear about people cashing out and getting tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, these home run hits that are make people wealthy, that is not the rule. That is the exception. Okay. Mm. Because businesses, when somebody buys a business, they're an investor. Guess what? An investor wants to know if I put this many dollars across the table to you, how many do I get back? And the rate of return has to be commensurate with the risk associated with the business. So when you start to think of those terms, here's the reality is most small businesses sell for anywhere between one and three to three and a half times their annual cash flow to their owner. It's not very exciting. Most people, when they start working with me and they want to sell their business and I tell them what their business is worth, they'll say, geez, all I have to do is stay here and work for another two and a half years. I'll get the same money. So why then do businesses get sold? It's because there's a pressing personal need on the part of the owner to move on to something else. So when I own my business brokerage office and today when I work with my consulting clients, it's always the same. It's burnout and fatigue, the need to relocate, the desire to retire, divorce, poor health. These are personal reasons that force people to change. Now, as you can imagine, people are happy They don't want to sell because they need the income, but then something happens to force them to sell. And so here's what's been happening in my business lately. When I started a couple of years ago, I rarely met anyone who wanted to sell an online business. Now more and more people are contacting me looking for help to sell their online business. This makes sense because if you look at the timeline of people being able to make money online, and I'm not talking about the Zuckerbergs and all these kinds of people, I'm talking about regular everyday people setting up eBay store or an Amazon FBA reselling operation. Like they're actually building a little business that's earning them in the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So a real small business. If we look at this timeline, most of these people that have been able to do this have only really started to do this in the last decade or so. And so now we're getting to the point where more and more of these people are hitting those personal fence posts, those personal needs to actually have to move on. And so more and more of them are starting to show up. And what I'm seeing is that these businesses are changing hands and they're changing hands with the same kinds of valuations as everyday small businesses do in towns and cities around the world, the same kind of valuation metrics, and they're changing hands for the same kinds of reasons. 
and they're changing hands on the same kinds of terms of sale. And that's the other big thing that most people don't understand when they set up and run a, a business is that businesses are not sold on cash terms, almost never. So that means if you build up a business that's producing $50,000 a year, let's say for yourself, and you find someone who's willing to pay you $100,000 for that business, don't expect a check on closing day. Most businesses sell with a down payment and then the, the vendor, the seller of the business is forced to finance part of it. The way that that payment stream over time can vary incredibly. It can be a fixed debt that has a certain monthly payment over time, or it can be a, a payout based on the future earnings of the business, um, or it can be based on percentage of sales or the retention of a certain number of clients, etc. Really, the online business is the only thing that makes them different from every other real world business that I've worked with is that number one, it's, you're right, they are very easy to start. But number two, they can be sold to anyone anywhere. And that's, that's the really big difference. So if you're in a small little rural community without a lot of people and without a lot of traffic, you can still create a successful, profitable online business and the buyer of that business could be anywhere on earth. Really, it's almost like online businesses exist in the biggest city of them all, where anyone potentially could buy the business and they could be anywhere in the world. Those are kinds of the things I want to get out there when we talk about online businesses is that they're very similar in what they're selling for and the valuations, et cetera, to real world businesses, but you can sell it to anyone. And in selling it to anyone, of course, then you have different kind of risk in the deal because what if you sell your business to someone under certain terms and they transfer you know, the domains and everything to another country and then they don't make the payments, what recourses do you have? And so there's other neat, innovative ways that people are solving that problem as well. Thanks. Thanks so much for that, David. Let, let's talk a bit about buying an online business. So sure. for someone, if someone comes to you and they say, hey, I don't want to start an online business because I don't want to get through the headache of, of building one up. I just want to buy one. What advice do you give clients, Dave, for those that are looking to buy an online business? What, what are some th key things that they should be looking for in an online business to purchase? Yeah, well, the, the biggest thing is that you want to buy a business in an industry that you understand. You don't want to be, you know, a graphic designer or a, um, you know, a civil servant and buy, uh, you know, a supplements business if you know nothing about supplements. You need to have an understanding of the product and what you're getting into. And then on top of that, you have to understand how to make an online business work because in a lot of cases, the people who are buying these businesses are doing the marketing and the SEO and all that kind of stuff on their own. They're not necessarily engaging other professionals to come in and help them. The biggest mistake I see people across, again, real world or online, is buying a business in an industry that they don't understand. Let's say someone's got, a, got an online business and they're planning in the future to sell the business. What's some important things that they should have in place or begin to have in place, especially as they're looking to sell the business? Number one, they need to have some kind of financial record keeping. They need to have something to show people. I see a lot of online businesses being run very informally where people aren't keeping the best records. They're not keeping track of things. If they end up ahead in cash, then they figure they're doing okay. What a buyer is going to want to see is they're going to want to see what the performance is. And that means actually using some kind of bookkeeping package where you can keep track of sales and expenses. On top of that, you need to keep track of which expenses are what we call discretionary. 
So for example, you know, most households are paying for internet access. And if you have an online business from home, then legally your internet access might become a deductible business expense for tax purposes. But you know, the kids are still streaming Netflix and you're still doing all your personal stuff. So clearly this is a perk to having an online business. And so what we try to do is a way to identify which of the expenses really are nice perks to the owner because it actually represents part of the profit. It's a business expense to have that internet, but the fact is that you're running a business at home paying for your internet access and you don't have to reach into your own pocket to buy it. That's part of the profit of the business. So when you go and make a presentation to a potential buyer, you're showing them the hard costs, like if you're actually selling a physical product or you're spending money on advertising, but you also want to be able to identify the things that the business spends money on that also represent a benefit to the owner. They're kind of like the owner's profit or salary at the same time as they are business expense. Mm. What do you find, Dave, are businesses, especially online businesses, but what businesses are really popular right now that investors or want those wanting to get into business are wanting to buy. Is there a particular type of business that they're more interested in than others? I'll give you an example. Like, for example, you mentioned Amazon FBA before. Is that more popular than someone that has an e-commerce business where they're ordering stuff themselves and shipping it off than a business, what other online business, like an email marketing business, for example? Are there, are there any businesses that are more popular than others? Yeah. The businesses that are most sought after are the ones that involve subscription customers who are signed up to pay a regular fee over the course of time, like for example, the telephone company, you pay every month. And so those are the most sought after. The second tier would probably be the the businesses that build a clientele of people who come back. So maybe they're not buying on subscription, but you're selling something that people keep coming back for over and over again. So the real world example is the grocery store. You don't subscribe to groceries, but probably you have a habit to go to the same one or maybe the same couple of grocery stores whenever you need food in your house. And then the lowest tier would be the once and dones. You, you sell something and once somebody owns that thing, they're never going to ever have to come back again. That would be the bottom tier. People who rely heavily on other people's platforms. If you have a business and you sell things, I don't know, maybe you sell kites and you have kites.com and you have a whole e-commerce site there, that's better than selling kites on Amazon because Amazon could decide to change the way their system works and your sales could suffer. Businesses who rely on other people's platforms often are selling under terms that tie payments to future earnings. Mm-hmm. So that if someone like Amazon changed their algorithms or just, you know, changed how things worked, the buyer wouldn't necessarily be on the hook for the full purchase amount that was agreed upon. And, and really what the terms of sale try to do is it tries to put some of the ri- risk of the purchase back on the seller because things are, are unknown. We never know when a new competitor is going to come along. We never know when government rules are going to change or when someone like Amazon or Google are going to change the way search algorithms work. If you think about an apartment building, it's a tangible thing. If you maintain it properly, it'll last for decades or a hundred years. Many people in different parts of the world can buy an apartment building, maybe on 10 times cash flow, maybe you know a little bit more, like maybe 12, 14 times cash flow. So if you think about that, and then you think about something as risky and flimsy and non-tangible and non-established as an online business, you realize just how different the valuation would be, how much, how many times fewer the, the cash flow 
that an online business would have to sell for in order for it to make sense for somebody to buy that. If you buy an online business on a two times cash flow, what you're saying is that you have enough trust that everything in the, on the internet was going to stay constant for the next two years for you to get your money back. Which is a bad right. <laughs> Which is a bad Right. And so, yeah, so, so who's yeah. going to gamble that the internet isn't going to change in two years? Mm-hmm. It, it moves quickly. So that's why you get the valuations that you get. And that's why you get things like terms where people want to relate payments to future sales. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've had that experience in my own online business where uh, I once when I first started out many years ago, I was doing really well promoting affiliate offers, ClickBank affiliate offers through Google AdWords. Mm-hmm. You can't do that anymore. Google doesn't allow you to do that. And not only that, but there was actually a time when my income dropped 90% overnight when Google changed their policy and right. they wouldn't, they didn't allow my ads to run anymore because they didn't want affiliates promoting ClickBank products on their AdWords platform. So I've experienced that. I experienced it again another time where uh, later on where I had a, a YouTube channel where I'd made hundreds of videos, getting lots of exposure, free traffic, making lots of sales from it overnight, again, gone. So yeah, you, you're absolutely right where you have, you want to have as much control as possible over your business for your own sake and especially too when you're selling your business, which is why I started building, building an email list because mm-hmm. then I have, I have control over that. Yes, my email service provider might decide they don't want me to use their service anymore, but that's okay. I, I can take that list and move it to a different email service provider. So it's, it's more control. So that's really well, important. Well, you know, it's, inter- yeah. it's interesting that you say about an email list because I know that for a while I, I used to see a lot of local businesses relying on their Facebook pages to reach customers and they would ask everyone to like them on Facebook and they were sending promotional messages. And then Facebook applied the throttling thing where now not everyone who likes the page sees the message. Yeah, only, to boost. only about 6% see it. Yeah. That's all. And so now you have to boost the post. And, and so, you know, I say to those business owners, if you had been collecting email addresses instead mm-hmm. of asking for likes, you'd be controlling the message. Yeah. And what I think is super important that you mentioned earlier was subscription based business model. And that's something that I always on this show and I talk to people that know friends, people that are consult clients. I tell them it doesn't matter what your business is. I don't care what your business is as much as is possible. Take your clients and make, get them on a subscription model somehow. And a good example of this is the dollar shave club. Who would have thought shavers, would become a subscription model, but they did. They took buying shavers to a subscription model. And that's why that company sold for so much money because they had a subscriber base. They had recurring billing clients. When you start talking about who is buying businesses too, there's another whole conversation. And it's the difference between financial and strategic buyers. So a financial buyer is somebody who wants an income and they're going to buy a business and they're going to start running it. They're going to become the owner manager. So they're going to take over doing what the seller has done. The strategic buyer is someone who sees value in the business because they have something else they can do with it. Let's say that you sell kites and you have an email list of people who like to buy kites and then you get acquired by someone who makes string. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now the, the string company says, geez, we have an email list of people who buy string. We can probably now start to promote kites to them. And the kite buyers are probably going to want to buy some of our string. So the two of them together now can cross promote on the two different lists 
And overall, the business becomes bigger and makes more money. That's a strategic buyer. Strategic buyers will not pay a, a seller for the money they are going to make because they, they know that that's the value they bring to the deal. But a strategic buyer, if there's a competitive situation with two buyers, they're the ones that will pay more because they know it's worth more to them. Having a list of people who buy something means that you can then target who your acquirer is going to be by thinking about who might want to sell stuff to your customers. It's always easier to sell a new thing to people who've already done business with you than it is to try to attract a new customer. So, yeah. so customer lists are so incredibly valuable in any business, whether it's online or a real world business. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Dave. For yourself, Dave, the work that you've done with business uh, people that, that are business owners looking to sell all of those, looking to buy a business, and I hope I don't put you on the spot here, but can you share with us maybe one or two examples of how you've been able to help this person, a mistake possibly helping them avoid a purchasing mistake or helping a buyer to get more for their business through your consulting? Yeah, sure. A really great example with a buyer is someone who I just helped in the US Midwest and they had found a business that they wanted to buy and they made the same mistake that a lot of people make. They didn't take into account the value of their own capital or the value of their labor. So they were looking at the cash flow of the business thinking, yeah, that's a, a number I would like to earn. But when I then showed them you know, after debt service and what money would be left for them. And then out of the money that they were going to receive, part of that had to be earmarked for the labor they were going to do as the manager of this business. And then part of it also had to be earmarked as a return on investment for the cash they were putting in. It was clear that the numbers didn't add up, that you couldn't buy that cash flow for that asking price and make the numbers work, which is very common. It's very common for businesses to be overpriced because there's so many people out there who work for 30 years on a business and to them, what they think it's worth, they often think in terms of, well, you know, I worked five years for no salary when I started this business and now I'm going to get paid for all that time. It's not real. That's not, right. that's not what buyers want. The buyers are investors. They want to put down a sum of money and get a return. And if it doesn't make sense, they're not going to execute on a deal. And so there are a lot of overpriced businesses out there. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the business brokerage world who don't understand how to sell a business. They don't understand how critical it is to price it right in the beginning. And they try and they promote and they try to sell these overpriced businesses. It, it just doesn't make sense. And what's funny is that this, this fellow, if he had not used me and if he had moved down the pipeline and actually gotten in front of a banker or someone, someone else likely would have shown him that the deal wouldn't be able to cash flow then he would have already invested probably a couple months of his time. And for business buyers, people like to think of their resources in, in terms of dollars. But the reality is that the biggest resource a buyer has is time because you can easily spend six, eight, 10 months looking at, analyzing, negotiating, creating finance packages, talking to bankers, et cetera, trying to work out a deal on buying a business. And if it doesn't work out, then you've wasted all that time. I've had clients come in and out of my life over the course of years trying to put deals together. You want to get the proper training so that you know what to look for and you can immediately eliminate deals that don't make sense and leave them for other people. When it comes to the selling side, there are lots of people out there on the internet that, will, that are advertising that they can help people sell their business for more or sell it for more than it's worth. It, it makes me chuckle because ultimately, 
It's impossible to sell a business for more than it's worth. If a business cannot pay for itself, the deal will not close unless you find a buyer who has all cash and won't talk to any other kind of advisor. Where you do see that is, for example, new Asian immigrants coming to places like North America and probably Australia, where they have lots of money in the bank and they're going to buy a little convenience store. You know, they might overpay for the business because they're, maybe they're on an immigration plan, for example. Examples of this are very hard to come by. Most people need some kind of deal, either financing from the vendor or financing from the bank. When the sellers ask for too much money, all that happens is they delay the transaction. And as I said before, sellers are usually being motivated by a personal reason. They've got to sell. Once they make the decision to sell, it's no longer about the biggest price. It's about the shortest timeline. And so the shortest timeline means putting the right price on the business and understanding what a good deal is going to look like and understanding what the seller is likely going to have to do for the buyer as far as vendor financing, et cetera. I've had many people come to me looking for help to sell their business. And the first step in my five-step process with sellers is education. The second step is evaluation. So they do a bunch of my videos. I've got 200 videos online about buying and selling businesses. And they'll read some of my books I got 12 things to do before you consider selling your business. And there's also how to sell my own business, which was a bestseller in 2016. So they'll read some of my books, they'll watch some of my videos, and then I'll do the evaluation. And in the evaluation, I'll tell them what the likely terms of sale are. And more than once people have said, oh my God, I've been offered that. And they didn't know it was a good, reasonable offer. Right. And so they had their chance to get out and they messed it up because they didn't know what they were doing and they didn't have proper expectations established. To me, that's one of the worst things that can happen because if, if they're being motivated by burnout, illness, divorce, what, what happens is if you don't sell the business quickly enough, those life forces are going to start to erode the business. So the owner loses interest, they lose their passion, they lose their enthusiasm, they stop returning customer calls in the evening, they stop chasing down the next contract, sales start to erode, earnings start to erode, now the value of the business starts to go down. Yeah. And once you have a documented trend of decline, then every buyer is going to want to discount it because they think that there's something wrong with the market or the industry. And now the whole thing starts to evaporate. So when it comes to selling, you have to have the good records, you have to have the systems, all that kind of stuff. But you also have to know where your line in the sand is when it comes time to sell, you've got to act as quickly as possible and make your presentation to buyers compelling so that someone's going to want it. And this is the part that's missing so much from so many other people online because they're all focused on, on the greed. They're, they're focused on trying to say to business owners, do my thing and you're going to be able to sell your business for more. Very few people actually have the timeline or the plan to be able to build up a business and sell it as a money-making asset for the maximum value. Like I said earlier, most people run their business because they need an income. And it's only because something is happening in their personal life that they have to move on. Yeah, excellent advice. Really, really good insights, Dave. I, I, I've learned a lot from what you shared with us today, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And I've been on your website. You've got some great resources there for those that are wanting to learn more about buying or selling a business. By the way, sorry, that's businessbuyeradvantage.com. Is that the best website they can find out more about what you do, Dave, and get in contact with you? Or is there other, I know you have other websites as well. 
Yeah. Businessbuyeradvantage.com is targeted towards people who are interested in buying a business. Mm -hmm. And then my main blog site is davidcbarnett.com. And then um, how to sell my own business.com is, is sort of geared towards people who may want to sell a business. But davidcbarnett.com, it really is the place to go for people who are just curious about business deals. Because every week I put up a new blog post with a new video, which the videos are largely me responding to questions and comments that come in from the YouTube channel or the email list. People want to get on the email list. People on my list get the videos before they are released publicly, as well as offers for any promotions or programs. Right now I'm getting ready for my Buy a Successful Business in 2018 Accelerator program. It's a group program with only eight people. They work with me as a group and help each other. And the whole goal is for each of them to go out and buy a business. And it's one of the most economical ways that people can get direct support from me, as well as be held accountable and learn from other people working on their deals. For example, if someone in the group finds a deal and they want it analyzed, I analyze it in the group. Everyone else gets to learn. So it's, it really is a cool program if somebody wants to change their life by buying a successful business in 2018. Thank you for that. So again, that's uh, davidcbarnett.com. What's, I think what's really important for everyone listening to understand is that buying an online business is so much a better option than starting an online business because <laughs> anyone that started a business knows that it's grueling, it's taxing, it takes a long time to build it up. If you're able to buy a business and do it the right way, like through what you offer, Dave, for example, your program, you're just shortcutting your success. Yeah, I always say it's faster, cheaper, easier, and less risky to buy a business than to start one. And the reason I say that is because on day one, you have a cash flow. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why if you look at the business news, the large corporations, the big enterprises, the really big boys that trade on the stock exchange, they never start businesses. They buy them, mm -hmm. right? Because the people in charge of these businesses, they've got their stewardship of all this money that belongs to the shareholders. If they're going to plunk money down to do something, then they have to be able to show that they made a wise decision and that they're going to get their money back through some kind of cash flow. That's what these guys do. Unless it's driven by a new technology or a, you know, a new discovery of mineral deposits, for example, these big companies do not start new businesses. They buy them. It makes a lot of sense. It's interesting because within everything that we do, we always buy ready-made. If we want a car, we'll buy a car. If we want a computer, we'll buy a computer. If we want a home, we'll buy a home. But for mm -hmm. some reason, when it comes to business, and I'm guilty of this too, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an expert here, but when it comes to business, and I've, again, I made this mistake, we, we start our own business. We'll start our own online business. We'll start our own offline business. And like you said, the risk involved is so high. Within the first five years, 85% of businesses will fail, something like that. And even more, that percentage gets higher as the years go by as well. So I have a theory about that. Would you, like, would you be interested in hearing it? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I think the theory probably applies to Australia as much as it does to North America. If you go to a bookstore, you can find sometimes hundreds of books on starting businesses, you know, different businesses, how to start a catering business, how to start a consulting business, all this kind of thing but you might only find two or three books on how to buy a business. And so what is it culturally that draws us towards this idea of starting a business? I think it's the same story we've been told for two or 300 years of the pioneers. 
people arrive in a place like Australia or Canada and they you know get a piece of raw land and they cut down the trees and they bring in the animals and they plant the crops and they build the homestead. The original homesteads are the original small businesses because you fed yourself through what you did and you also produced a little bit extra that you could trade. That pioneering spirit of making something out of nothing on the wild in the wilderness, that's the same storyline of the entrepreneur having an idea, building it from scratch, making it work. And so I think to a great degree, culturally, in a lot of different countries, people are attuned to that kind of story because it's the same story that we've been told for so long. Yeah, That's my theory. I have no proof whatsoever that this is the case. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah, it is very interesting that we do that. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time with us today. Our guest today has been David Barnett. Again, his website is davidcbarnett.com where you can learn more about buying or selling your own business. So thanks again. I really appreciate you being with us here today. And I also want to thank everyone for being here with us on this podcast. Hey, John Legadakis here. If you got something out of today's episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast as each week I'm releasing valuable and up-to-date content and interviews. Also, there is a transcript of today's episode as well as links to all the resources we mentioned on my website, johnlegadakis.com. On my website, you'll also find a lot of great free resources to help you get more traffic and leads for your business, as this is my specialty, i.e. helping local businesses generate leads through Facebook and AdWords campaigns. My website, again, is johnlegadakis.com. Thanks again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This is John Legadakis signing off. I'll see you next time.